You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 49, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. And today's expert is just me. Today we're just going to have a solo episode because I've got all kinds of guests lined up, but none of them were available this week. And so I don't want you to go too long without an episode. So you're going to get all me, but we're going to keep it a little bit brief, I think. And we're going to discuss, I think, uh, what we've sort of been discussing throughout the first year here of episodes we're going to look at the framework of for the U.S. medical system. And by that, I mean, what do we have to do from here to get to where I think most of us want to go? There are a lot of proposals. There's lots of solutions. Uh, there are a lot of problems. And I think a lot of the solutions don't match the problems. I think a lot of the, the solutions that are proposed really don't focus on the underlying inherent problems within the system. And if you don't fix the root of the problem, you're very unlikely to get to a solution that's going to be one that people are going to like. Because I think if we were to look at the healthcare system today in the United States, what is it that people want? I think it's, they want something affordable. They want something that is going to provide a high quality that they've come to expect. Uh, they want safe medications, safe procedures. They want to know that when they need something, a uh, procedure or a medication or expertise, that they'll be able to get it in a timely manner, whether that's an emergency situation where you know they're in a car accident or whether you're in something like getting a diagnosed with cancer, or you get an infection, a pneumonia. Can you get the care you need in a timely manner where it's going to be useful to you? Furthermore, can we find the people who can provide this care, the framework that can provide it, and have those people enjoy their job and, and be effective? Because I think if you have people who are miserable, uh, who are stressed or burnt out, they're not going to provide the care we want. And so, I mean, in some ways, you guess you'd say, well, if you don't have that, then you can have everything else set up, but if you don't have a job that's fun, uh, that is rewarding for people, that it's not one that 
will be exercised properly. And so it's going to be substandard results. And I think it's important to point out here that the culture in the United States is important. The expectations we have, the way we're executing our laws, the way we're getting through life, those are all unique to our country. Our heterogeneity of races and cultures that are sort of melded together, we have a defined Americanness to us. So I wouldn't expect our system to work at another country any more than I would expect another country's system to work in our country because people's expectations are different and our our ideas of how we get to from point A to point B are different. And so I think it's it's unfair and unwise and for us to expect that we can adopt another system or that another system could adopt ours. This is the same reason why you can't just have our military go into, say, the Middle East and say we're going to bring democracy to you when no one there really knows what democracy is or democracy is seems different to them or it's not it's not exactly what they want. And so to try and impose a cultural norm that is that works in the West, specifically the United States, absolutely might not work somewhere else. You could even say the same about Canada, although Canada is very similar in many ways to our culture. Uh, they are very different countries and they have different backgrounds, histories, and you just look at, I mean, certainly the founding of our countries are different. And by that token, there's no reason to expect that a solution is going to fit either one, even though we speak English, even though we share a border, even though we share much of our same culture in the sense of uh, businesses and music and art, but other things about our countries are very different. And so to think that we can use their system or ours, or that one can be invalidated in one country, therefore would invalidate in the other, I think is hubris to think that we can we can use them necessarily as examples. So that's a long description to basically say that there is no perfect solution for the problem we have today. Likewise, I think it's important to recognize what the United States healthcare system is good at. I mean, aside from spending money <laughs> and taking your money, uh, it is innovative in many ways. It has excellent healthcare. It's there's lots of it. Um, there's innovation in pharmaceutical standpoint and procedurally in technology. And so there's a lot of things that should not be destroyed in the, in, in the process of saving the system itself. And so I think it's important to, to recognize that the U.S. healthcare system, as many problems it has, it is not a complete and utter disaster. That is not to say that it is at sometimes a disaster, and in some ways it is. And I think the biggest problem we have in this country is the cost. And, um, and one could argue it's the price. It's actually not the cost. The cost is, you know, maybe not as bad as it could be seen, but the price, the amount that's charged to people, not actually the cost of delivering the care is different. So I don't know, maybe it's semantics, semantics, but so let's try and figure out what the framework we'd have is if we want to devise a better healthcare system. First, I think, you know, it's important to point there's no perfect solution. And I think the determination of what is the right amount of money to spend is unknown. And I think that really just totally is dependent on the wealth of the country. I think what makes a lot of sense for spending now is different than what it was 20 years ago, and is probably different than what it'll be 20 years from now. And it's impossible to predict what the right amount is. And so I think anytime you look at cost, it is not really the best way of determining um, what the what we should be spending on healthcare because it's entirely dependent on what you're actually getting for your care, right? I think people would be very willing to spend two or three times what they're spending on healthcare right now, knowing that you're going to live 
in excellent condition to age 200. You know, if we had some sort of gene therapy that would allow you to live in excellent health up to, you know, like again, age 200, I think very few people would say, well, that was not a, a good value for your for the money. Now, if you're spending that much money and you're getting exactly the same healthcare you're getting today, people would say, well, you're getting ripped off and that's not, <clears throat> that's not helpful. It's going to suck away resources from other parts of our lives and that we'd rather spend money on. So let's not focus on the goal GDP. I think that's a, the wrong th- way to look at it. I think it's a, it's a useful measure for how much you're spending now versus in the past. But again, it's the difficult to try and figure out what the quality of healthcare you're getting based on just on GDP. It's also important to note that you can't necessarily use life expectancy because there are a lot of factors in this country that affect life expectancy. First is how you determine it. Do you count a death of a 23-week preemie as you know the death of a 23-week preemie? Some countries don't count that as a live birth or death until you reach a certain age. Likewise, we have a very heterogeneic population. We have people from all over the world who come here all the time, who have nothing, who have substandard health when they get here, and to expect them to have the same life expectancy as someone who may have lived here their entire life and been able to get good care and maybe the second or third generation. I'm not sure. I'm just kind of throwing these out things, these things out there. I think it's important to know that it's going to be different. And so because we have a large immigrant population in this country, it's a little bit tricky to use just life expectancy as a determination. Also, life expectancy is primarily due not to healthcare, but is due to lifestyle. And that's how much you exercise, what you eat, how you take care of your, your own body. And so it's probably not fair in necessarily to gauge the, the health of a country based on its life expectancy. Uh, and also the fact that it is a heterogeneous country. There are some, it seems to be, there are some races that seem to live, live longer. And I hate saying the word races because it's hard to say that, you know, that they're necessarily races, but certainly certain genetic pools, if they're more homogenous, they tend to live the same length of time or have the same life expectancy. And so if you have a bigger mix and bigger of a bell curve, you're likely to get difference in life expectancy just due to that alone. Uh, so anyway, all that's to say is that it's very hard to determine what is better and what is worse. I think we can always strive for better, uh, and but exactly how you determine what's better, again, that's up for some debate. So before we embark upon figuring out how to solve things, I think it's important that we recognize what the problems are in the healthcare system right now. And namely, I'd say there are three main th- things. We'll say one is jointed costs. So these are costs that are not borne by the person who's actually providing and or receiving the, c- the care. So it's a third-party payer system. Uh, there's a heavily regulated industry in every aspect, whether it's insurance, or the delivery, uh, the providers, the pharmaceuticals, the instruments, Every part of the healthcare industry is heavily licensed and regulated, uh, which is a way of stifling innovation, and it's a way of protecting the turf of all those involved, from physicians to hospitals to nurses, all the techs, the pharmaceutical companies, everybody. Uh, There's also a lack of price transparency. And when you have those things, you're not going to get the outcomes you want. And so an, an example of that, I think to point out why, why price transparency is so important is prices are in a modern economy, they are a way of determining the scarcity of resources. So if you had no prices and you walk up into to any store and there's no price for anything, 
there's no limit in what you would purchase if you have no cost to anything. Uh, but obviously, there is a finite amount of resources in that store. Now, in healthcare, we're either talking about stuff like drugs and you know instruments you might you might got, get like a, for a surgery or something like that. And there's obviously a finite supply of those. But it's also important to note there's a finite supply of everything, whether that is manpower. So you can't have there's not infinite amount of hospital rooms. There's not infinite amount of surgeons or anesthesiologists or cardiologists or infectious disease physicians which makes it important to have prices or costs to things. Uh, this is a way of for people to recognize how much there is of something. If there's only one cardiologist in the entire country, they would command a tremendously high price for the services because they're extremely valuable. Therefore, if someone has a little chest pain and, you know, maybe it's, they ate something bad last night, they're not going to go to a cardiologist because it would be a cost of fortune. The person who's having crushing chest pain who needs a cath right now they would obviously be willing to spend much more money because it's a, and it'd be much better use of resources for them to use a person who is very expensive because they have something that is clearly a cardiac problem. And so it's a way of matching the scarcity and the demand, right? And so it's a supply and demand question. But if without prices, you can't match those things. And so if there was no price, you'd say, I'll just take the most expensive everything. But obviously, that would not be helpful because there are people who probably do need it more than you do. And even if you're really rich, and this is always the, the argument against using prices in medicine, like, well, if everything was free, it'd be a lot more, it'd be a lot more equal, it'd be fairer. But it's obviously, the first thing is people with wealth and means are going to have far better connections, and they're going to be able to get whatever they need anyway. Uh, so all a system like that would do is is distort the amount of stuff that is available for people. And so there'd be shortages. Uh, and if you are rich, even if you're rich, you're unlikely to spend a ton of money on things that you truly don't need. Uh, I think a good example is hurricanes, where you see certain products that suddenly become very expensive in times of natural disasters or crises, where you have limited amount of resources. So a good example is the hurricane comes and there's everyone says, oh, I'm going to need to stock up my bottled water because they're not going to have my uh, access to fresh water potentially. And so they go to the store and they buy water. Well, if the store doesn't change the price because there's suddenly been a gigantic spike in demand because now everybody who normally didn't have to get water feels like, well, I probably need some water for my family. Uh, if the store doesn't change the price of water, it will run out of water very quickly. And this happens all the time, right? You see empty store shelves. If the store is able to raise the price of water, let's say it quadruples the price. Instead of $1 a bottle, it's now $4 a bottle. You're very unlikely, even if you're rich, to take a bunch of water, buy tons and tons and tons of water so that you can now, you know, brush your teeth and take a bath. You're probably just going to take enough water to drink. And that's necessary for you to, um, to just survive. If you keep the price artificially low, the people are just going to buy as much as they can right away because there's a risk that they will, they might need it for later. And you know, it doesn't really cost like a, you know, 25 cents or a dollar for a bottle of water, but now it's, you know, $4 or $10 a bottle. You're going to be much more judicious about getting the water and it's going to provide water for everybody. The person who's rich is going to have enough water to survive no matter what, whether it's $10 a bottle or $1 a bottle or a hundred dollars a bottle. But by, Cause increasing the cost is going to definitely make it much harder for them to buy everything, all the water for reasons that are not as important as the person who needs it to survive. 
this is where the charitable organization comes in. They can have access to the water as well now. They can purchase it because they'll have the means and they can provide to people who have less means. Healthcare is no different. Uh, if you have no cost for anything, then it's going to be used up too quickly. If you have prices set, then people are going to be much more judicious about their use of resources. And the wealthy and the people who are connected are going to have access to it anyway. You just want to allow, you want to have as much uh matching of demand and supply as possible. And so that's why the price system is so important. And why, in our current system, when you don't have price transparency, you get these mismatches all the time, and it causes all sorts of problems and distortions to the market. Which brings us to the initial question. So how do we have a better framework for a healthcare system? So we don't have shortages, we don't have mismatches in prices, we have availability, and a greater abundance of products and services for people of all means. Uh, because right now, that's clearly not the case. Uh, and so when we look at other markets that we have in this country that function very well and things that are even more essential than healthcare, like food, for instance, we have no problems with uh, abundance in food. Certainly options are somewhat limited for some people at times, but for the most part, people can get all the food they need and all sorts of different varieties, and there's a tremendous amount of competition and price, and it's super affordable if you look at the amount of time that people have to spend for food. Uh, now versus, say, 100 years ago, without a doubt, uh, it is so much better now. And especially when you look at the quality of the food, not only do you have greater abundance, but you, the quality is so much better than it used to be. So that's what we want for a healthcare system. And I think we need to use markets as much as possible to unlock this sort of uh, abundance. So how do you do that? And I think, you know, in this last year, we've gone over a number of solutions, sometimes small, but certainly ones that I think are ones that can be, I guess you'd say, uh, ramped up or expanded. I think we'll start first with primary care, because most of the care that when people think about going to the doctor is going to see their family physician, their internist, OBGYN, pediatrician. So this is your first contact with the healthcare system. Uh, occasionally you'll go to the emergency room and things like that, but that tends to be a very small portion of your actual healthcare you know, contact for most people. It's not the greatest expense, but it certainly is a large expense in, this, in that most of those visits are covered by insurance, and insurance is extremely expensive. And I think, you know, if we can find a way to have care, let's say just and separate our primary care, the gatekeepers, the people who are referring to specialists, etc., and just remove that from the initial care uh, of package in insurance, I think we could dramatically lower the cost of, ins of insurance, improve our quality of care, and lower the price of receiving high-quality care. And as anyone's listened to the show for a while, direct primary care is certainly a very viable option for most people. Direct primary care offers affordable, high-quality care, generally, uh, lots of value, and a care that most people don't get from their current is super expensive uh, care that they get through their insurance-based system. I switched to direct primary care this year and just a few months ago, and it's really remarkable how different it is. Uh, you had a system previously that was, I felt, sort of not designed to help me get through the system easily, and I'm someone who can, you know, I'm pretty adept at managing visits and, you know, who to talk to. I mean, I can curbside other docs about other, uh, you know, problems I might be having, so I don't really have to utilize everything fully as for within the healthcare system, yet I would have trouble getting appointments and getting through to th people and finding out results from labs and things like that. Now it's super simple. I mean, it's like 
Well, this is of course how it should be. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Any other sort of person I use as service, you just have easy you have easy communication with them. Because if they don't, you just fire them and you get someone else. You just don't have that option in healthcare right now. And and not only do you have that option, even if you switch to someone else, they have the same kind of broken system. And so by having the direct primary care, it has radically changed my view of what primary care can be. And especially when I look at how affordable it is. I, most of my docs patients actually are immigrants who don't have any care. And so this is their only care they get. Uh, and so for there's no question that this is a viable option. It needs to be dramatically scaled up. It's probably not for everyone. But I think for the most part, a large percentage of our population could certainly use this sort of care. And it would offload a lot of, a lot of uh, visits that go to specialists, a lot of imaging, and by finding ways of reducing costs, because that's part of what your DPC doc does, both saving you money on imaging, laboratories, and pharmaceuticals, you're going to decrease the cost and the amount of you know, money spent in the healthcare system in general. And so I think, without a doubt, it's going to be a better way for most people to go, and it's going to lower the overall healthcare costs for everybody. So DPC, I think, is one leg of the stool, let's say, that is going to be essential the second large expense that people pay and things that I think that we can fix is pharmaceuticals. And I said at the beginning of the show here that probably looking to Lansing or me in Michigan or to your state capital or to look towards the federal government in D.C. to solve the healthcare problems is going to be a solution that's not going to be one that's going to work very well. Uh, very rarely do I think that government provides solutions that are going to work efficiently. Uh, there's certainly you know more of a one-size-fits-all or one-size-fits-none, as I joke about our hospital gowns all the time. Uh, so I think, you know, if you're going to look for solutions, the more individualized, the more uh, adaptable, the more nimble and small they can, they can be, the more likely you're going to find one that's going to match your needs and it's going to provide a better fit for you, what your problems are. And so I think if you look for large regulatory changes or large gigantic programs within the federal government, it's going to be very disappointing. I think you're not going to find what you want. And so I think, although that being said, you probably shouldn't look for DDC for solutions. There are a lot number of laws that exist within the state and federal level that prevent you from getting innovative options that would allow you the choice and the things you need. So it is important for the folks up in Congress to pass laws like to allow you to buy pharmaceuticals across uh, national borders. I know you can get a few months supply, but why should there be any restrictions? Uh, I think, you know, that alone would allow would lower the costs of pharmaceuticals, at least in this country, potentially would raise the prices in other countries since they oftentimes have price ceilings. And so they use their our open market in the sense that pharmaceuticals can charge any price they want here, which again I'm okay with, except that it's they then sell way below market to other countries because they can't, because there's no way for us to have access to those pharmaceuticals without going there or saying we only have a three month supply, et cetera. And so by allowing you to, to buy pharmaceuticals anywhere in the world, it's going to allow a, a decrease in price and it's going to make it more affordable for everyone here. I think it's also reasonable to look at the testing by the FDA. Uh, a lot of what they do, if you look, listen back to the episode I had with Mary Ruart, where we discuss the regulatory burden of the FDA. Uh, when you look at the testing now for the FDA, a lot of the expense for these pharmaceuticals is not for the safety of medications, although that's the generally what people think of the role of the FDA, but it's for the efficacy or the effectiveness of medications. And so if you have these large trials, as um, 
you can get rid of a lot of those uh, and just have medications that have been proven to work and to be safe. And then it's true efficacy in sort of large populations or do you personally, that's something that you can be tested by physicians through and there's and pharmacists and patients. And so I think that's probably a better way of doing things than to, with the efficacy tests that are done by the FDA now, which delays the emergence of medications in the market, some of which are extremely beneficial, uh, whether they're, you know, pharm- uh, chemotherapeutic agent or their anesthetic agents, their also antibiotics or whatever. Uh, but it'd be a better way of getting the medications out and be a lot less expensive. And finally, with pharmaceuticals, it's probably worth thinking about whether you can have dispensation of medications without a prescription. And that would, you know, how people would get medications and what recommendations they get, probably through your physician, maybe from a pharmacist, maybe from someone else, I don't know. But this is sort of anathema to physicians, and they probably don't like to hear that. But a large expense is having to go to a physician and to try and to get a prescription. And, and you know, lots of physicians don't really want to prescribe lots of these medications, like pain medication, things like that. Uh, you make recommendations, but you get hassled all the time, or the weekends, you have to have people on call. You, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that's in place just to take care of prescriptions and writing them and things like that. And when people go see the doctor less if they don't have to go someplace for certain things? Yeah. And is that going to cause problems with antibiotic dis, uh, administration and maybe there'll be more antibiotic-resistant medi- uh, you know, bacteria? Maybe. Uh, those things you probably consideration. You have to think about how you sort of work all that out. I think so. But I think it's something you have to consider, at least think about, as a, as a way of driving up the cost of medications. And maybe we have to rethink that. Finally... And the one that I would say is the crux of the most of the problems in the healthcare system today is the fact that it's a third-party payer system. That you have a system in which the person is the patient is disconnected from the the cost uh, of the actual care itself through the a hospital or pharmaceutical device or provider or whatever. Uh, and so, and then they also have no constraints, and their patients are not their customers are not cost conscious either. And so you have insurance companies kind of doing this a little bit, but for the most part, you have a disconnect between how much you have to spend and the actual cost of things you're buying. Nothing in the healthcare system is actually designed for price transparency. And so one of the reasons hospitals are so dead set against these, the potential of transparency laws is because they really don't know how much most things cost. It's very hard for them to calculate these things. It seems strange, but it's very true that their business is never set up that way. It was never devised that way. They were devised just to treat disease. And for them to try and figure out exactly how much each disease costs, it's really hard for them to do. And so it's not a problem for patients, but it's a problem for the industry. And so it's something that I think needs to be looked at. Also, because we have these third parties, they have an incentive to streamline their system and say, well, we're going to figure out how much everything costs and how much we're going to pay for each whatever it might be a visit, hospital visit or clinic visit. They pay the same for everyone for whatever visit based on certain criteria. So if you're a good physician, a bad physician, it doesn't matter. You get paid the same. It's not like this in any other industry that I'm aware of. You don't pay your lawyers just a set fee. There's probably a generally accepted fee, but you don't pay for any sort of product in the market anywhere on a set schedule, whether it's your mechanic, whether it's your painter, plumber, anyone. And so it's entirely reasonable to have different prices set. For instance, if I want to have direct primary care, but instead of seeing a physician, I want to see a nurse practitioner, someone with less training. Well, 
why would I be paying the same amount for them as I would pay for someone who has more training? I mean, I would expect to pay less. I would expect a different level of care. And you would charge what the market bears. If you charge too much, you wouldn't have enough patients. If you charge too little, you'd have too many patients. You couldn't see everybody. And so I think that sort of system would make much more sense. But it, wouldn't, it will never occur as long as there's a third party, as long as there's some intermediary between the person asking for the services and the person providing the services. So it absolutely is essential that we have a removal of the third-party payer. Now, maybe you have insurance and you at least remove the fact that there are employers paying for the insurance, and so that would certainly help a little bit because now patients would have an incentive to shop around, and that's you know one of the benefits of an HSA, for instance. But only about 1% of the market is an HSA, so I think HSAs are a good solution, a good first step. And how you take care of larger expenses, I'm not sure. And I don't pretend to have an innovative mind where I can come up with all these things of my own. But I think you see some people with solutions like the health sharing that we had just a few episodes ago. We discussed that. And I think that's a way of of forcing people to be consumers, to be pay attention to cost, uh, and then yet helping each other out in a community, a communal fashion in sort of an insurance-based-like process. But everyone's got some skin in the game. Everyone has incentive to do the right thing and to be careful about not only where they're spending the money, but probably how they're taking care of themselves. And, you know, if you take care of yourself and don't smoke and exercise and eat better, those sorts of things, then you're probably going to have better outcomes in your health in general, and you're probably going to lower the overall health care costs of everybody. And so I think that's also a solution, I guess you'd say. But it's probably not the only one. There are probably plenty of other things. I mean, there's no reason you wouldn't have insurance anyway. We have insurance for all sorts of other things. But maybe just insurance just looks different. Maybe it just pays for different things. Maybe it just pays for the untimely accident, the surprise surgery, those sorts of things. If you just had it for those sorts of things, it'd be much different uh, as far as cost. It'd be much, people would use, utilize healthcare service more judiciously, and it'd probably have, we have a lot more rational healthcare system. So those would be the sort of the three main things I would think of as far as a framework. How you get to there and uh, do those things requires some legislative action, but I think a lot of it is just, it's just patience and citizens deciding that they just want to do things a different way. The market will adapt. There will be regulatory burdens put on people, uh, on industries to try and prevent them from taking over the market as there are vested interests, of course, in maintaining their market share, uh, whether it's physicians or hospital systems or pharmaceuticals or device manufacturers, etc. But what I've found is that from a political standpoint, once you've reached a certain point where um, where there's a huge demand for something, and, and it doesn't have to be huge, I should say, just a very intense demand, you're going to have enough political pressure to prevent large industries from squashing them out. And I think homeschooling is the best example. It's one where people were dissatisfied with the educational choices. Maybe they thought they wanted more religious bend to their education and they weren't offered that opportunity in their small communities or if they're rural or something like that. And so they just w- went about educating their children in their home. It was such a small sort of thing that most of the governments hardly did anything about it. They kind of would try and use truancy laws, but no one really felt compelled to enforce it. It wasn't until the homeschooling movement became bigger, and then people started thinking, well, I should have a choice for my kids to go to school, where now it's fairly accepted that these this portion of our educating children is going to exist. There's always going to be a homeschool movement, and you know, if you try and pass laws, they're unsuccessful because there's enough constituency that it prevents it from from uh, being squelched. And if one state were to somehow manage that, 
people just certainly move to another state or they cause enough trouble that it's not worth the, it's certainly cause a significant impact on the, that state that tries to completely stamp it out. And I think it's quite clear with the innovative products and services that people are providing in healthcare that are getting around the system or working within the system and yet still providing the high quality, low cost care, that these are going to be successful if given enough time. Even if you were trying to introduce something like Medicare for All, I think, for one thing, it's not going to provide care for everybody anyway. There's going to be massive shortages of, of services, just like there are now for Medicaid. And uh, you're going to have an, a huge desire for an alternative system, a private system, some sort of alternative uh, way of getting and receiving care that's going to exist. I mean, if you try to make that illegal, which is, you know, you could legislatively try that, it's going to cause all sorts of problems because you're going to have you're going to have no way for people to get the care they need oftentimes at any cost. And that's just not going to be acceptable in this country with our current culture and with our wealth. I just, you know, it's just not going to happen. So what does that mean for you and me in what we do in life now and how we bring about these changes? And I think it's just you kind of make these choices as you think they've worked for you. If you're a provider, oh, I hate that term. <laughs> if you're a physician and provider of healthcare, uh, whether you're a hospital administrator or you run a surgery center, provide pharmaceuticals, your pharmacist, whatever, maybe think about looking at some of these innovative solutions for delivering care. Maybe direct primary care. Maybe you want to find a way of just going to all cash or, or finding people who are interested in working outside the system. Maybe you have a hybrid model. There are all sorts of different possibilities and solutions. And then in your personal life, you can choose things that work best for you. And I think that's the best way to, to do this, to try these different services, to try and get your care different ways and see if it works. Maybe it doesn't, but there are enough people out there who've shown that it can work in certain situations, whether it's a surgery center of Oklahoma that has all their prices online uh, and it's just like a menu option. And so is that the solution? If you're a hospital administrator, you try and actually do that sort of thing, or you have a surgery center, you say, we're going to move to that sort of system. I think there are people there who help you do that. And I think it's a way of us all kind of moving the needle in one direction. We can stamp our feet. We can in write letters to our congressmen or senators and uh, representatives in our state house and the governor. Uh, and, you know, those things are reasonable. And I think those are things you can do. But I think if you're looking for real change, the best thing to do is to talk to other people, your family, your friends, your colleagues, and tell them about these innovative ways of getting health care. Think about how you can maybe incorporate them into your life either, or maybe your practice, depending what your position is, and just do them and just see how they work. And I think that's the way we really make big change. Going to the ballot box once every other year or four years is not going to have much change because when it comes to binary choice, most of these things are not binary, right? They're, you're going to go to the store and have to decide between two brands of toothpaste, you have 100. And so I think it's important that we have various shades of white all the way gray through black. And I think it's the shades of gray that are where most of us land. And that's where we have, that's where we have the biggest impact in, as consumers and as uh, providers of care. So I hope you enjoy the show. It's kind of short. If this is more of a better commute length for you. I'd appreciate any sort of feedback you have. Please email me at theparadoxshow at protonmail.com. You can also go to the website at theparadox.com. There you'll find the show notes for this page where we refer back to some of the previous episodes we sort of discussed in the show. You can also find me on Twitter at The Paradox Show. 
also on Facebook at The Paradox. You can just search for that. Finally, if you're not a subscriber to the show, please subscribe to your favorite podcast player. Costs absolutely nothing. I appreciate your patronage. And continue spreading the show. I appreciate it a lot. And I'll close the show, as I always do, with my late son Andy singing his solo at Christmas in 2017. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>